Good morning, Faith Church. I am so glad to be here, gathered together in the name of the Lord to pursue him with you. Uh, I know I've said this before, but one of my very favorite promises in all of scripture is that when we seek him with, uh, with everything that we are, he will be found. So I am excited to discover more of him with you today. Well, I wanted to uh, highlight a few things for you going on in the life of the church. Today is the Faith Kids pool party. Today, today, today at 12.30 at the Beatty's home. If you need the address, that is uh, on the flyer on the connect wall for you for the Faith Kids pool party. We invite parents to come with your kids. Enjoy free lunch, which is Hungry Howie's. And I'm really excited about that because as my son says, they have the best pizza crust. So today, free lunch, even if you didn't RSVP, come out anyway with your kids. It's um, zero through fifth graders um, with their parents. We would love to have you there today at 12.30. Also, this Saturday is Faith Church's Back to School Bash. This is an all-church event, our, our kind of send-off to summer, even though summer's for like another month and a half. But the kids, as far as they're concerned, summer is coming to a close. And so we just want to take time as a church family to celebrate with each other all that God has done. We will have a cornhole tournament. We will have free food. We will have the ice cream contest. And um, in the last couple days, I've heard several people talking about the recipes that they're trying (laughs) to win, to use to win the coveted gift card for the ice cream contest. But the good news is, even if you don't uh, enter the ice cream contest, you still get to vote. Um, So all of us that will be there will get to vote. We all get one vote. However, if you bring uh, uh, food cans, canned food, for uh, each can up to three cans, you get an additional ticket for voting. So friends who are entering the ice cream contest, it would behoove you to get a bunch of friends together to bring more cans so that they can vote for you or vote their integrity, either way. Um, That is coming up. If you would like to sign up for that ice cream contest to enter that, uh, we would love, love, love for you to do that. It's so much more fun the more ice creams that that are there to taste. Um, Go ahead and take your Connect card. There's a spot uh, on your Connect card. I found it amusing this morning. It says, I ex- uh, it says, my next step today is, you can check, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. I recommit my life um, to Jesus, or I will enter the ice cream contest. So priorities, it's, it's a big one. Um, so enter for the ice cream contest, and you will receive an email this week with more details on what to do uh, with regard to that. Also, I, I, I don't know how to be more emphatic with you about my passion for home groups and the way that I've gotten to see Jesus move um, through and in people as they have engaged in life, doing life together with other people at Faith Church in the community um, through home groups. This week is the last week to sign up for home groups. This next session that we'll be kicking off in the fall, um, we'll be starting our next session of home groups the week after Labor Day. So it's coming up quickly. Um, So I really encourage you, if you are at all interested in connecting with other people in the body of Christ and having a space to ask questions about things that the Lord is teaching you on Sunday mornings, And throughout the week, if you want a space to engage other people in conversation, in questions, in life, in prayer, in practicing the gifts of the Spirit, please go ahead and mark on your Connect card your name and that you are interested in home groups, and you will receive an email with all the details um, for that this week and in the coming weeks before we get started with home groups. Um, Real quickly, just uh, a side note on that, there are multiple groups that meet different days of the week, so there's probably a group that fits with your schedule, and we will work to make that happen. All right. 
So that is all I have uh, in the way of announcements. But I did want to share a passage with you. Um, And as we get ready to just dive into the word, if you would stand with me and just posture our hearts and our bodies toward the Lord. I was reading in, um, let's see. I was reading in the scriptures today. And it was talking about how how God sends us his helper. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. And in John 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Okay? So Jesus is telling them. I'm going to read that again. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because, why does the Father love you? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This is significant. God, God loves you. And a huge piece of that is because of your love for Jesus. And that used to sound really, really scary to me because I, while I mentally agreed that God was God and Jesus was God's son, I didn't know what it felt like to love Jesus. I didn't know what that was supposed to feel like. I just felt like I didn't feel it. That's all I knew. But here's the beauty. He's inviting us to love Jesus, but our God is so good, and he knows that it takes God for me to love God. It takes God in you to love, for you to love God. He sent us the helper to help us love him, to help us come into union with him that way. I remember one of the most, um, God reminded me actually just a few weeks ago that one of the prayers I used to pray over and over and over, I would beg him to help me have passion for Jesus because I had the mental knowledge, but I didn't have the passion. And I would beg God and beg God. And I'd totally forgotten that I had prayed that prayer until a few weeks ago when the Lord reminded me. And he's done that. He's a good God. He wants to equip us to do what he's given us to do. He's the one who who empowers what he's asked us to do with and for him. So if that's something that you are struggling with, if you want to feel the passion that you know God wants you to feel for his son, ask him. Ask the helper to help help you with that, and he will. He is so, so, so faithful. So, Lord, we just come to you this morning, Father. And we say, come, helper. Come, helper. In the name of Jesus, we ask you to come and help us love you with everything that we are. Help us, Lord. Stir the passion. Don't just stir the passion, God. Bring it to fruition, Lord. Let us praise you with passion. Let us love you with passion, God. We acknowledge that it takes you in us to bring you the love and the praise that you deserve. So, Lord, we cry out and we beg you, God, to give us a passion for your son, Jesus. Give us the passion for him that he is worthy of, God. 
We surrender ourselves. We die to ourselves, God, and say, have your way in us this morning. Have your way in this place this morning, Lord. We honor you, and we honor Jesus, God, and we honor your helper, the Holy Spirit. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I just continue to echo what Lauren was praying. Holy Spirit, assist us as we worship. I'd like to see, I want to see some bold worship today. Uh, I've just uh, been um, doing some reading recently, and something that I read just radically changed my life. And this guy said, he said, when we get up as worship leaders, we think we're starting something. Like we're getting ready to start a worship set. And he said, man, he said, read Revelation 4 every time that you go to lead worship because worship's already occurring in heaven. We're not starting something. We're joining a a program already in process. So let's begin to lift our voices. Let's worship the Lord with boldness and let's declare who our God is. He is Jehovah.
God, 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 and it was never going anywhere but there. And I felt like the Lord wanted me to tell you that he is saying, you better get to know me. Don't just sing to me on Sunday, but get to know me, yada. Get to know me intimately. I felt like he was saying that, it says in these last days, they will be pressure-filled days. We haven't even seen pressure. We better know our God. We better know the God of the Bible who never changes. We better know the Jehovah Rapha that heals our bodies when we're banned from seeing any doctors. We better know who's fighting our battles. When there is no love, no love from your family, no love anywhere around and you start to question God, you better know that he is love and that he loves you and that he is for you. Can we just all declare our dependence and our desperation on God this morning? God, oh, how we need you. Oh, how we need you, God. We are desperate for you, Lord. You are Jehovah Jireh. You meet every need. You are the all-sufficient one. You are great I am. He told Moses, tell the people I am that I am. And to this, us this morning, I feel like he's saying I am. I am whatever you need. Don't look anywhere else. I'm all you need. Oh God, my God, I need you. Oh God, my God, I need you now. How I need you.
You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down, and you are good. for 10,000 years and it could never encapsulate the totality of your goodness we would never get to the bottom of how good you actually have been and are to us God I look forward 10,000 years to still searching the depths of who Jesus is. God, let our hope and our trust be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, you are good. You are good. You are so good. In Jesus' name. Stay standing. 50 weeks in the Word. We had some, I think we're, I think we had a couple more people sign up last week. I think we're up to like 80 people, which is pretty awesome, who are engaged with 50 weeks in the Word. Each week we read one chapter, we memorize one verse, and on Wednesday there is one Bible study. And we're in 1 John chapter 4 this last week. It's a great chapter. Um, 
And 1 John 4, 13 uh, is what we memorized. So there is your refresher, and let's say it together for those who have committed. If you haven't committed, don't worry about it. First John 4:13. You may have a seat. We're going to we have two more weeks in Mark. Two more this week and next week. Who is Jesus examining the God man in the book of Mark and this morning we're going to talk about some specific we're going to get into some nitty-gritty of of what it means to follow Jesus. And next week, we're gonna talk about the final destination of man. Um, I will be in Mark 10 if you wanna turn your Bibles there, but first I want you to imagine that uh, my wife and I are going out on a date night, and I've gotten dressed up, which for me means I've put on pants and wore a collared shirt, right? Um, And my wife comes out, and she looks just stunning as usual, right? And she's uh, ready to go and she says, how do I look? Now imagine if in that moment, with all, I love her with all of my heart and in that moment I said my true feelings and I said, honey, you look awful, right? There's probably not gonna be a date night probably going to be repercussions of that statement for weeks to come, if not years. Remember that time you called me awful? I cannot forget. Right. Now, now I want you to do something else now. Now imagine, now this is harder to imagine. That first part, you're like, yeah, I can see that happening. Uh, the second part, I want you to imagine that we lived, me and my wife, we lived in 1500, all right? The 1500. So 400, 500 years ago. And we just have a farm and we're just poor farmers and uh, we have kids running around and she's come in and there's some weird stew cooking over a fire because that's all we eat really. And she comes in and the sun's shining on her face and she looks at me and I look at her and I just feel the love of the day that I married her and I said, honey, you look awful. Right, in the 1500s, she would have batted her eyes and blushed and said, thank you so much. Me, right now? I've just been working in the field all day. No, you, right, here's the point. Words change meaning over time. Back hundreds of years ago, awful meant something filled you with awe. You were awe, full of awe. So when you told somebody, when something was awful, it was majestic, it was beautiful. And so my bride in 1500, coming in from working at the fields, filled me with awe. But my bride, if I said that to my bride in 2023, I'm toast, I'm done, Uh, right? Words change meaning over time. I looked up this week, I said, words, I simply go, words that changed meaning over time. Awful was one. It it used to be synonymous with awesome. It produces awe in you. And the word cute, I didn't know the word cute changed 
meaning over time. Cute used to mean that somebody was sharp or they were really quick-witted. And now it, you know, it means cute. Oh, cute, right? Fantastic means something is great and incredible. That is fantastic news. But it used to mean from your imagination, right? It, it was something that you could only be imagined. Um, and, and so these words change meaning over time. And, and it's important for us to understand that because in the Bible, words that are written meant something to them. We talked about this a little bit last week. It meant something to the people that, that God was writing to in that moment. And we get in trouble when we then shift our 21st century lenses and paradigms on words in the Bible. And we're gonna talk about that with a word. But first, I wanna go over again uh, what I went over last week. Um, all right, my chair isn't there, so I'll just put it in front, right? This was, this was my diagram of the gospel as presented in the New Testament. If you weren't here last week and you didn't catch up online, you have to go catch up because we talked about the King Jesus gospel. And we, cha- we were looking at what is the King Jesus gospel versus what is just a salvation gospel and how the salvation gospel is inadequate. The salvation gospel just wants people to say prayers and make decisions and doesn't cost anything. And the King Jesus gospel is the gospel of Jesus as king. Um, and so the, the point that I was kind of making last week was that it starts with Jesus being pre-existent with the Father, that Jesus existed before everything, and he came down to live with us, and there he goes to the cross. Right? And then after the cross, he is dead and buried. He goes to proclaim victory to the spirits in prison, and then he's resurrected, and that's my tomb with the stone rolled away. I know I didn't need to explain it because it's self-evident, but just in case you didn't know what that was, that's what it is. And then the, 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 the focus of the gospel goes up here that Jesus seated now at the right hand of the Father, Lord and Messiah, over all, okay? And so my point was that when we preach the gospel now, the average evangelical church, average evangelical preaches the gospel now, we focus a lot right here, right? That's the whole presentation, Right? But when the New Testament, and we, went, we looked at a whole bunch of verses, when the New Testament presents the gospel, they are staying here and here mostly. They mention the cross and they talk about it, but they are focused on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I saw a, a quote, I think I saw it on Twitter, um, that they were paraphrasing um, Tim, what Tim Keller says, where he says, man, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then nothing he said matters. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then everything he said matters, right? And so they, the New Testament authors focus on the resurrection and they focus on the enthroned king who is next to the father right now with all authority. And that the gospel is primarily about, is not primarily about the human response of faith in, which we're gonna go over this morning, and Jesus' saving work, but rather about how Jesus became enthroned as Lord of heaven and earth. And this is seen in another thing that I didn't share, that I'm gonna share with you this week that I didn't share last week. The most often quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. I've said this from the stage before, and I'm not gonna like 
do a pop quiz and say, who's remembered? Because I've said it like five times because, you know, I, I know you guys don't remember everything, but now you have to remember it. The most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament is not about Jesus coming as a sacrifice. It's not about Jesus coming as, um, as Messiah. It's not about, it is about him being enthroned. It is Psalm 110, verse one. And the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. That's the most commonly quoted and alluded to verse in the New Testament. Because what's the focus? Jesus is king. He is sitting on a throne right now and all his enemies are being made his footstool. The New Testament presents the gospel as the story of Jesus' risen king and the response of people is to turn to him in allegiance. And so we're gonna read out of Mark chapter 10. My title this morning is What Must I Do? I'm gonna read the, the story of the rich young ruler now in verses 17 through 27. And here's what it says. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud and do not uh, and honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come Follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. What we have here is we have Jesus talking about entering the kingdom of God. It's, uh, it is prescriptive to see that he does not talk about going to heaven. When they ask, what is it? How do I inherit eternal life? He doesn't say, well, if you wanna get to heaven, here's how you do it. He says, Let's, here's how you enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God inaugurated by Jesus is an eternal kingdom. It was promised as a kingdom that was never going to end. And this morning, we'll come back to that passage, but we're gonna talk about faith. The Greek word that is translated as faith in the Bible is the word pistis, pistis. I was saying pistis a lot this week as I was preparing, and I'm like, that, that sounds like a curse word. Like it just, it just, it gets, it's a little, it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, but it's Greek, so I'm okay with it. But it's not pistis. Man, what happened? I was pistis, I don't know. Um, right? So, <laughs> did, I, did I go a little too far? It's all right. Uh, 
when we hear the word faith, we have this modern definition of it, and we're gonna talk about what faith is not in just a second because we wanna tear down the modern definition, and we wanna ask the word, but how would an ancient person think about pistis, especially as it relates to salvation, right? Because if, if we agree with the Bible that it is by faith that we are saved, by grace we are saved through faith, right? then we better understand what faith is because the grace comes from God, the faith has to come from us, okay? So we have to know what that is. So I have three things that faith is not. Faith is not only, and notice the underline there, it's not only mental agreement or belief that certain facts are true. It's not only that. So somebody can't, so if you told, somebody could be there and say, you know what, I look at the historical evidence and it seems like this Jesus was real, that he really lived, right, okay? It seems like from the historical record that he was crucified on a cross. And it even seems like something happened after that. Maybe he was resurrected to where, because he started a whole movement from people that would never start a movement in any other circumstances. Like, so it seems like it's that. Is that person saved just because they can agree with that? This is what the book of James is all about. James says you can't just have mental agreement. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works, and show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Show me what you believe. James is saying, you can't show me what you believe. Right? So, so if I'm up here and somebody said, show me what you believe about the Carolina Panthers. Right? If I can't do anything, I'm just standing here. Now, some of you who know me might guess what that would be. Right? But I would just be like, I can stand very neutral. And Well, I know he's a Raiders fan, so he probably doesn't like the Panthers, but maybe he doesn't hate them. Like, I don't know what he believes about them. But now show me what you believe by your works. <laughs> right? That's what I believe about the Carolina Panthers. <laughs> okay? So now you have an understanding, but you can't do that just by trying to guess what my mind believes. Okay? And if it were merely mental agreement, then demons would be saved. Because in the next verse, James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. You know what he's, it's a little sarcastic there. You believe that God's one? Good for you, bucko. Awesome but even the demons believe, and they shudder. So it cannot only be mental agreement. If it's just that, then, then this is the ramifications that we see from it. And faith is not simply repeating a prayer and saying the right words. Now, understand something. I believe in people repeating prayers that other people lead them in. I do it almost every day, right? When I'm doing inner healing, deliverance, this repeating prayers that I say, so I'm not opposed to repeating prayers, but if you're simply repeating a prayer and saying the right words, where there's no heart change, where there's no, um, no uh, repentance turning to Jesus, then we're just, we're just babbling, like Jesus warns against. We're just saying a whole bunch of things, and God's not going to hear it. Right, in 721 to 23, Jesus says this. He says, you can say the right things. You can call me Lord, Lord, but that doesn't mean that you're gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. 
It's the one who all it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven that sees the kingdom of heaven. Right? And then they say, well, we did this and we did this. And he says, no, but, but you were never doing it for me. You were doing it for yourself. Depart from me. I never knew you. I didn't know you. You just said some words and you thought that that meant that you were with me, but you weren't with me. In Luke 6, 46, he, he's talking to them and he's, he, he's talking to, to some uh, people who are listening. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? It's like you're saying the right words, but you're not doing the things that shows that you actually believe what you're saying. Okay. There's a parable of two sons, and uh, two sons, and uh, the the father tells the sons, "Go work in the vineyard today. Go work in the fields today." And one of the sons says, "Okay, I'm going to go. I'll do it, Dad. While you're gone, I'll go work." And the other one's like, "I'm not doing that. I'm just going to stay home. I'm not doing any of that." And then this son who said, I'm going to go, he says the right words, tells the father what the father wants to hear. When the father actually leaves, this son doesn't go. And this one who didn't say the right words, it's like, ah, you know what? I better do what dad told me after all. And he goes out to the vineyard and he goes out to the fields and works. And then Jesus says, which one did the will of the father? The one who just said the right words or the one who actually put action to their words. It's the one who put action to their words. So what we have with this is that some people have said the right things and they've repeated the right words with no heart change, with no repentance, which is a change of direction, and no commitment to Jesus as king. See, we're tying this into last week with acknowledging what Jesus is king actually means. And, and we can say some words and not actually believe that Jesus is Lord, reigning now. The last thing, faith is not for us this morning. Faith is not blind agreement or believing in something with no evidence. Uh, last week, I think it was either last Friday or Saturday, I was playing soccer in the backyard with my son, and we were doing, this doesn't get a dollar because it's not about you, buddy. Um, and uh, we play a game where there's like penalty kicks and we try to score on each other. And I try to mess with him and fool him to get the ball by him. And so I went and I put the soccer ball down. He's over here. I put the soccer ball down and I take a step over here. And usually I come back here and I do a little run up and I kick it. But I was like, I'm going to quick kick it to catch him off guard. So I went like this and I turned around and I kicked the ball. But I kicked it on the tip of my heel. And as I did that, as my leg came up, I felt a pop in my knee. And I was like, oh. And I just, I didn't even stop my motion. I kicked it. I went, boom, pop. I was like, I'm done. And I ran into my house, sat down, put the ice pack immediately on. And it hurt. It's, it's actually like at 90% now. But um, it hurt for a few days, right? And, and blind faith, right, uh, uh, believing in something with no evidence, uh, I don't want to maintain a positive outcome to get my desire, a positive attitude to get my desired outcome. So I did not walk around my house saying, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed in Jesus' name because the reality was that no matter how much I repeated that to myself or I kept a, a positive outlook on my injury, I was still in pain. 
Right? It, it, we we uh, went to a conference this week, and uh, it was at Ridgecrest, and so there were hills up and down everywhere, and the youth were up top, so to get my daughter, we have to walk up this hill on my knees, like, screaming at me, right? And I believe, you guys, everybody knows I believe in divine healing. I, be- I lay hands on my, my knee, I lay hands on other people's knees, but I, I don't walk around saying, I'm healed, I'm healed. I have faith that I'm healed when I'm not. It's not just having a positive outcome, a positive attitude to get a desired outcome. Christianity, and then when we look at it as a whole, we we don't believe something that has no historical evidence and can't be defended intellectually. There's evidence for, like I said earlier, for Jesus living, dying, being crucified under Pilate, that there is a lot of historical evidence for the resurrection and the fact that the disciples who were cowards before now led a movement that has changed the world is evidence. So we're not just agreeing with something with no evidence. When we talk about faith in the Bible, we always have to mention Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11. It's the hall of faith. And you'll read these things by faith. Abel offered a better sacrifice by, than Cain. By faith, Noah built an ark where there had, in the middle of a drought. By faith, Abraham believed. By faith, he went to offer up Isaac. By faith, Isaac did this. By faith, Jacob, all of this. But here's the reality of this. Hebrews 11 is a list of people who did extraordinary things by faith. But they did not leap blindly. They all relied on a God that they already had real experience with. When when Noah was told to build the ark, it's because he had walked with God his whole life. He was the only one who did. He was the only righteous one. And so because he had walked with him his whole life, probably seen God move and bless him in his life, when God said, start to build an ark, he says, I trust you because I've known you for decades. When God tells Abraham to go offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, right? We don't see this in Genesis, but Hebrew says, man, God, uh, Abraham had already seen God open up Sarah's dead womb. He had already seen life come out of something that was dead. And so when he went to go sacrifice Isaac, it said that he believed that God would even raise him from the dead. But why did he believe that? Why did he go to sacrifice? Why? Because he'd already seen it happen. They weren't doing these things blindly. It took courage, but but it wasn't blind action. So let's talk about biblical faith. Uh, I went to Carowinds about a month ago for the first time. Um, Hadn't been to Carowinds. I used to take youth on... um, trips to, to theme parks, but hadn't been to Carowinds, and it was um, one of our uh, elders here, Michael Bovey, it was his son's Eli's birthday, and so the two of our families, we went there um, to go have fun. And I, I was thinking about roller coasters, and you have to have three things to ride a roller coaster. If you don't have all of them, you're not going to ride it. The first thing is you have to be tall enough. You have to be tall enough, right? Um, the person who wanted to ride the most roller coasters when we went was the Bovie's youngest son, Owen. This kid's a little madman. He's not here this morning, so I can say this. He's a madman. 
and I'm gonna give you a dollar, Owen. I know your dad will listen to this, so he can tell you I'm gonna give Owen a dollar. He's a madman. He would see these roller coasters, and he would be like, I wanna go on those. And he'd run up, and poor Owen's just a little short. He's, he's only eight years old. And so he'd come up to the 54 inches, and he'd be a good six inches short. And there was, he, there was some that were 52 inches, and he'd run up, and he'd put it up there, and he'd be like this short. There was one that he, there was a couple that he could ride, and he wanted to go on them repeatedly. And one of them was this one. I don't know how he was tall enough to ride this one and not another one, but it like shot you up, and you do these flips, and you go, and then it stops you, and then you do it all backwards. And he's like, I want to go on it. And so he went on that multiple times, right? But he couldn't go on some of them because he was not tall enough, right? And so he's already planning about how he's going to grow in the next year so that he can go back next year and be tall enough to ride the roller coasters, right? So you need to be tall enough. Now, there were plenty of kids with us who were tall enough but didn't want to go. They had no desire. You need height and you need the desire to go. I used to take youth groups to there and I used to be able to hang with all of the students, right? We'd go, we'd get on a roller coaster, go out, yeah, let's go to the next one. And we'd just go all day on all these roller coasters. And then we took a few years off from going uh, to these theme parks as a group and I never went. And we went back and we went on the first roller coaster, right? And we went on and I got off the roller coaster and I was like, whoa. Like something's different. Like I'm feeling a little lightheaded. My stomach's, this has never happened to me. I don't know what to do with this. And they're like, let's go on the next one, Charles. And I'm like, you guys go. I need a two-hour break. Right? I've realized about two hours what it is. So we go to Carowinds and we get in there and we go on, I go on the first roller coaster. And it's the one where you sit and your legs are hanging and it's, it's fun. It's a good roller coaster. I'm not, I, I go, I'm, t- I'm tall enough so I can get on. And I go, and we do all the flips, and I get off, and I'm, I expect it, though, and I'm like, whoa, okay. A little, little messed up. And so I didn't have the desire to go on a roller coaster for two hours. <laughs> that was gonna be, I wasn't going to go on another one for two hours. And then by the time I was going to go on another one, the rain started, and they shut them all down. And I was like, oh, I kind of wanted to go, but I'm kind of happy it's raining. Like, I can go either way with this. I really didn't have the desire. So you need the height and you need the desire. Because I could have got on that, gotten off that roller coaster and just gone to the next one because I was tall enough. I could do it. And the last thing you need, you, have, you need height, desire, and you need courage. Because right? there are kids who say they're tall enough and they really want to go, but seeing those things go so fast and flip and jerk you around, you don't want to go on it. There's fear there. I don't want to. They're tall enough, yes. They want to, yeah. Are you brave enough? No, I'm not. Maybe next year. I'll do it next year. Right, that's what they always say so that you'll take them back to the theme park. Like, I'll go on it next year, and you take them next year, and they don't go on it again. Right, that's just how it goes. So you need those three things, and that's how I want you to think about faith as I talk about faith now. That there are, uh, you need different things to have the biblical view of what faith is. You need mental agreement with the facts of the story of Jesus the King. You need to believe some things, right? Okay. And we'll get to all these more in depth. You need a public pledge of loyalty to Jesus the King. You need that. 
And you need embodied action, means physical action that shows loyalty to Jesus the King. You need those three things, and we'll look at scriptures that shows all of these. You need those three things to have what is called that biblical notion of faith. Okay? Biblical faith can better be termed believing loyalty, which is a Michael Heiser term, or allegiance. This is how it was described in ancient times, right? In contemporary times. Not from the Bible, but it shows how people used it in those times. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He writes of two kings praising the faith the Jews had towards them. It wasn't that the Jews believed that these, these other kings were kings. It wasn't that it's their allegiance that they had to those. And you can find those in, in, in uh, the Antiquities, chapter 12, verse 47. Antipater was a ruler, and he was described as having shown pistis to Hyrcanus, the king. He showed faith. He showed allegiance to this other man as king, and that's in the Jewish wars. In many different contexts, there's so much more of this in Josephus and other ancient writings. I'm just giving you two examples. In many different contexts, pistis does not mean faith, how we think of faith how we think of it, but it means allegiance. So let's talk about the three principles. Mental agreement. Believing the facts of the gospel is necessary, but not sufficient to salvation. Think about this as the height requirement. The first thing you need to get on the roller coaster is you have to be tall enough. Doesn't matter if you have desire, doesn't matter if you have courage, you have to be tall enough. If you don't have the height, you're not get, you shouldn't even get in line because they're not going to let you on. They're going to measure you up top, they're going to send you back, right? Height is necessary to get on the roller coaster, but it's not sufficient. That's not all you need. Mental agreement, believing the facts of the story of Jesus is, is, is necessary but not sufficient. And so people hear that and they ask this question. Well, how much do I have to mentally agree with? How much do I have to believe? I went to a conference, like I said, this week up at Ridgecrest, and there were two um, missionaries. There were two missionaries who, who, who spoke. Uh, one, they were a couple. Um, she was an American woman, and he was from a country in the Middle East. And she was called to go to do overseas missions. And while she was doing overseas missions, she meets her husband. They come back to the States for a while. And then they, they believe that God tells them to go back to his country to be missionaries. His country is a heavily Muslim country. And Muslims converting to Christianity face death. Right? And, and so they are there and they've been there for some years and they've been... Uh, preaching the gospel. They've started some underground churches. And one day, her, him, and his mother, or her mother, one of their mothers, his mother, were arrested. They just barged into their house and they got arrested. And he was put into a 5 by 14 cell. Can you imagine 5 by 14? Just there all day. Bread and water is all he gets. And they're not physically torturing, but they're mentally torturing him. A couple weeks in, 
um, two guards talking over here, and it's, they're putting on a little act of putting on a little play, and they said, oh, the foreign woman passed away, and they said it loud enough for here, so for, loud enough for him to hear, and so for a week he thought his wife was dead. They would bring him to a room, and there was an interrogator there, and the interrogator would, would, um, would said to him, I'm not here to physically punish you, but I'm going to mentally break you. You will be mentally broken by the time we're done. And so this just goes on for weeks and weeks. And one time, he goes there, and he says, I had about enough. And he said to his interrogator, he said, you look tired today. I don't know if you want to say that. Somebody's going to interrogate you. But you look tired today. And the guy kind of, he's like, yeah, I've been sleeping well. My back hurts. He's like, oh, okay. Pray for your back. And so, but this opens the door and he starts to pray for him and tell him a little bit more about Jesus. And here's what the interpreter said to the man. He said, when I leave from here, Jesus visits me in my dreams. This guy is torturing Christians. And he tells him, Jesus visits me in my dreams. Right? How much do you have to mentally agree with? If that man, not knowing anything about the resurrection, not knowing anything about atonement, not knowing anything about Jesus, if he said, I'm just going to follow this man who is in my dreams, that would have been enough. How much do you have to mentally agree with? You must believe enough truth that you're willing to give your allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. You don't have to worry if you couldn't fully grasp what I was talking about with atonement theories two weeks ago. Ransom, satisfaction, penal, I don't, I got really confused. I don't care. You can learn about those. But do you know enough to say, Jesus is it? That's all. Christ and Christ alone. And I will give everything for him. Because this is what happens in other countries. There are churches in China that run off just one book of the Bible. And they are far, they're experiencing the presence of God far more than most churches in all of the world. And they don't have everything, they just have a little bit. Believe enough. It's, it's, it's you just saying, look, it's okay not to understand it all. It's you saying, look, I may not understand all of it, but Jesus is king and I'll follow him. That's the mental agreement that you need, right? So you don't have to worry that you don't read enough books, that you don't listen to as much teaching. You, you should grow in your knowledge as you go. But wherever you are, in whatever stage you are, if you're just willing to say, Jesus is king and I'll follow him anywhere, then you know enough for right now. So get out of your head that you need to have every fact memorized and every fact dialed down and you have to learn the big fancy words. You don't. Just say Jesus is king and then I'll teach you the fancy words, all right? You need the mental agreement and you need a pledge of loyalty. Here's what Paul says. If you believe, because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
The word believe there is pisteo. It's the same uh, root as pistis. It means to give faith to, or better put, to give allegiance to. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and give allegiance in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one pisteos, one gives faith to and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses is saved and is saved. Here's what you need to understand that uh, confessing, the word that Paul uses here, uh, it's homologeo. Confessing that Jesus of Lord is a public declaration that you serve Jesus as the ruling and cosmic king. The public declaration. And, and here's what the church has done in the last hundred or so years. Right? This is how it kind of started. I'll give you a little progression, right? If you want to, if you want to follow Jesus with your life, you want to make that commitment right now and you want somebody to pray for you, come up to the front. I, I kind of like that as a pledge of loyalty. I, I don't think it's necessarily complete, but I kind of like that. And then it was like, oh, asking people to come forward, that's too big of a step. So we'll just ask people to stand. So if you want to follow Jesus as Lord and you'd love to have somebody pray for you, stand up in your seats. And that's that's Okay. And then you kind of get to this, like, stuff that I don't necessarily enjoy doing, but don't, uh, I don't criticize anybody who does it. Okay, why don't you, where you are, everybody, close your eyes and raise your hand. Right? There's nothing public about that, except people are looking around, so it's kind of public, but just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Uh, that's... People might feel uncomfortable with raising your hands. So then I've been in meetings where they're like, okay, everybody bow your heads. And if you want to accept Jesus Christ, just look up at me and make eye contact. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying that? It's like, sorry, guys, I just got, I just got out of prison. I've been beaten a whole lot. Ah, if you want to follow the same Jesus I do, just make eye contact with me. And then it's even gone to the next step now where some churches are being like, just text this number that you want to be saved and somebody will preach with you or someone will pray with you. Right? So I fill out a connect card and put that you accepted Jesus. Right? So what, what pledge of loyalty do we make? I don't actually mind the, the walking up forward. But the Bible gives us the pledge of loyalty. The pledge of loyalty is baptism. Because right? I used to read these verses about baptism, and if you read them without context and without just, if you just cherry pick them, man, it's saying something really strange here. Like in Mark 16, 16, Mark says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So what does that sound like, that you need baptism for salvation? Now, we, I don't believe that because this is what actually happens here. Look. He says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but if you don't believe, you'll be condemned. He doesn't say, if you don't believe and you're not baptized, you'll be condemned. He says, belief is the thing that drives the baptism, okay? So I'm not preaching baptismal regeneration, which just means you're saved in baptism. But he, they tie baptism to the belief. And Mark is kind of the, or excuse me, Peter is the source for Mark. So it, it makes sense that Peter, when he's presenting the gospel for the first time, says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will re receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So he's tying these things together. He's saying repent, make the decision to follow Jesus, make your pledge of loyalty, and you'll be given the Holy Spirit. And then Peter, again, same person, he's talking about Noah and the ark and the flood, and he says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What? What, Peter? Baptism saves me? And he says, but he clarifies. He says it's not by removal of dirt from the body. So he's saying it's not by, baptism doesn't take your sins away. Baptism doesn't, um, uh, baptism doesn't clean you, doesn't make you white as snow. Baptism doesn't do any of that. It doesn't clean you up, but you're appealing to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. He is saying, so you are saying to God, I am yours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't believe you need to be baptized to be saved. The, the thief on the cross, right, was never baptized. We're going to see him in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to see him there. But there is this thing that ties this, the, the baptism becomes a pledge of loyalty to God. So that's why it's important to be baptized. Okay, so if you haven't been baptized and you want to, come talk to me. Here's what Mike Heiser says. I love this when he talks about baptism. He says, in effect, baptism in New Testament theology is a loyalty oath. This part, ooh, so good. A public avowal of who is on the Lord's side in the cosmic war between good and evil. That baptism, you're dying, you're identifying with Christ's death and you're identifying with his resurrection and you're saying, I'm on your side now. I know that there is a battle going on. I know that there is a cosmic war and I am on the side of Jesus Christ because all authority has been given to him and he is king. Why does it have to be public? That's just the way God wrote it up. And there was persecution under Trajan that forced Christians to take back their confession publicly. So here's what would happen. Pliny the Younger writes a letter to Trajan, who is the emperor, if you wanted to look all this stuff up. And in the letter, he writes what he does with Christians under Trajan's orders. He's saying, Trajan, this is what we do. If we find somebody who says they're a Christian, and they are currently a Christian, we bring them before us. And we ask them, do you confess that Jesus is Lord? Because what Jesus is Lord means is it goes against the Roman phrase that everybody had to say, which was Caesar is Lord. Jesus and Caesar can't be Lord, so you have to choose your side by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And they would say, uh, okay, um, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Yes, Jesus is Lord. Is Caesar Lord? No. And they take him away. And they let him sit on it for a little while, hours, days. And they would hear other people getting tortured and killed. And then they'd bring him back a second time and they give him a second chance to renounce their faith. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? And if they said yes and Caesar is not Lord, they were off, tortured, killed, martyred for their faith. But what would happen is that some people would stand before uh, the, the Roman leaders and they'd say no. Uh, I don't, I'm not, a, I, I renounce Jesus and I confess that Caesar is Lord. Had to be done publicly. And then they make it even more public. And look, there's so many spiritual ramifications between before what they had to do. They would bring out an idol of Caesar 
a graven image of, of whoever is the emperor there, and the person had to bow to it. And then they were given an animal, and they had to sacrifice the animal in front of the idol, and while they're sacrificing it, they have to say, Caesar is Lord. Confessing Jesus Christ as Lord is a public declaration. Look, you can receive him, you can receive him silently in your room. You can, come to, you can come to belief in Jesus Christ as king when you're walking down the road and nobody is around. But man, there's this pledge of loyalty that we see in the scripture. They had to take back their confession publicly. And the last thing that we have to get on this roller coaster of faith is embodied action. That just means physical flesh. Embodied action are things done, are actions and works done to show what you believe. Now, that might make some of you nervous. Charles, we're saved by grace through faith, not of, not of, uh, not of my works so that no man can boast. I'm not saying that you can be saved by works. Does embodied actions mean that we are saved by works and not by faith? No, because at the end of the, the, end of the age, when we're standing before Jesus and everybody, somebody comes before Jesus and says, hey, here are all my works. Here's everything that I've done. Here's all the good stuff that I did while I was on earth. Jesus will look at him and say, did you put your trust in me as Lord and King? And if that person says no, Jesus is going to say, then your works aren't going to do it. You can't be saved by them. So embodied action, though, is a necessary component. And we're going to look at what Jesus says. When does Jesus grant people salvation? In John 3, verse 36, he's just, he said that love is the catalyst. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, and that word is pisteo, whoever puts their faith on Jesus, whoever pledges their allegiance to Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. And then at the end of this, he says, for the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that by through him the world might be saved. And at the end of all this, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. So believes there is pisteo again, pledging allegiance. Whoever believes in Jesus is saved. But one who does not act in obedience is not saved. That's what Jesus says. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Whoever believes has eternal life, but if you don't obey the Son, you won't have life. So salvation belief is tied to actions here by Jesus. And this is what James picks up on. He says, faith without works is dead. You can't have faith if there's not works tied to it. Is this the only place that Jesus talks like this? And a man came up to him when he was ready to set out on his journey. And he said to him, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus answered him and said, why do you call me good? For there is none that are good except for God. And then he, Jesus tells him, he says, oh, obey the commandments. You shall, he starts off with the, really one, the ones that are really easy to follow. Like, do not commit murder. Done. Check. Never killed anybody. Don't commit adultery. Been faithful. Right? And then he, they kind of get easier. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. 
honor your father and mother. And you have to imagine that this man who comes up to Jesus asking this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That, that, that he, gets, he gets a little bit, he gets a little boost in his spirit. Like, I've done all that. I've done it. Yes, yes, I'm there. All of these I've done since my youth. And then I love this part. And it says, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. This guy, Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew that he, this man had a works-based mentality. And he's saying, he, says, he looked at him and he loved him. And because he loved him, he said, you lack one thing. Take everything that you have. Sell, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And then you will have treasures in heaven. And come follow me. And at that, the wind goes out of the man's sails. His balloon slowly seeps out air and he's deflated. And it says that he left disheartened because he had great possessions. The rich young ruler is told to prove his loyalty. He's told to perform a duty to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Do this to show what you say you believe. And then Jesus starts telling people, look, this is what happens. People get attached to their stuff. It's hard for people with a lot of stuff to enter into the kingdom of God. It's very hard. It's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. And he says this so much that his disciples are a little bit dismayed. And they said, then who can be saved? How can anybody come? We all love our stuff. We all have all of it. Then who could be saved? And Jesus says the most beautiful thing. You can't do it on your own. It's impossible for you to do it. But through God, all things are possible. Jesus is walking and he's going into a town. And there's a short little man up in a tree. And he looks at this short little man, and he says, Zacchaeus, climb down from that tree. I'm going to your house, and we're going to have lunch together. And we don't know what the conversation is, right? So we don't know if Jesus told him, hey, I'm going to be crucified three days later. I'm going to rise again, conquering death, to show you that I'm the true Messiah. We don't have any record of that. All we know is that this encounter between Zacchaeus and Jesus, right, uh, sparks something in Zacchaeus where he says, if I, I'm going to give back all the money and if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times. And at that point, when he says, I'm going to do this in loyalty to Jesus, Jesus says, ah, salvation has come to this house. When he says, I'm going to do something to show you how loyal I am to you. The woman with the issue of blood could have stand on, stood on the sidelines. And Jesus probably could have looked at her and saw that she had faith. Paul does that in Acts. It says that he's in a meeting and he looks at a person and the person had the faith to be healed. But she shows her faith by crawling, going through the crowd to touch the hem of the garment. And Jesus looks at her and he says, your faith has saved you. What was her faith? To fight through everything, to get to him. Because she knew if she just touched him, she had the right belief. She had the right belief. If I get to him, he will heal me. Right? She had the, the public 
profession of that by fighting through the crowd. I don't care who I touch. I don't care who I make unclean. I'm getting to him. And what does she do? She grabs out the embodied action of grabbing it, being him. Jesus looked around and says, faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. It's the word sozo. Your faith has saved you and healed you and delivered you. Go in peace. After the rich young ruler, Peter says, we've left everything. We've left everything for you. And Jesus says, good, because you will be repaid a hundred, a thousandfold in the kingdom. If you leave me for my sake, if you leave your house, not if you just believe in me, but if you leave everything for me or for the sake of the gospel, you, you will receive a hundredfold now. And in the age to come, eternal life. Parable of the sheep and the goats. This one makes me uncomfortable because Jesus says, you've done all this stuff. If you've done this stuff, you get to go to heaven. If you haven't done this stuff. Right? And that seems like it's work-based until you realize that obedience drives, flows from your faith. Your faith drives obedience to him. And then every time Jesus is calling somebody to him and into his kingdom, what does he say? Follow me. He doesn't tell them, are you a sinner in need of repentance? Are you a sinner in need of salvation? He doesn't say to them, well, repeat this prayer after me. He looks at them right where they're at. They're people who say, I want to go with you. They have the right belief that he's Messiah. They have the desire. They want to do it. They're like, I will do it. And he says, okay, follow me. I have to go bury my father. Let the dead bury their own dead. If it's for you, you come and follow me. I have, to, I have to go say goodbye to somebody. No, come, stop, turn, follow me. So the question you might ask, well, how much embodied action do I need to do? What do I need to do? What must I do to be saved? Do enough. To where you show Jesus, my loyalty is completely to you. In that Muslim country of the missionaries, that might mean death. For you, I don't know what it means. Do you have to sell all your possessions? Jesus calls everybody to sell all their possessions. He calls that man to sell their possessions. Other people just call out to him, and they're saved. Other people follow him with everything, and they're saved. How much embodied act? Enough to show that your allegiance is to Jesus, the King. Why does this matter? Why are we talking about this? Because if it's just mental agreement, this is what we've turned it into. Evangelical Western Christianity has turned following Jesus as King, which we call the King Jesus Gospel, into simply agreeing to some facts. And what's the danger is that this has created false converts. It's the reality. You all know people like this. You've, you've been living with them in the Bible Belt for years. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe. Yeah, where do you go to church? Oh, I don't really go to church. I just kind of do my own thing. But, you know, I accepted him when I was six years old. Okay? Any fruit from that? I mean, you don't ask that, but that's what you're asking in your head, and you're looking at it like, there's no fruit. There's nothing. 
We all know people like that, and it's because, it's not always because of this, but my belief is that a large part of it is because at some point, they were at a, a VBS, or they were at some ra- rally, and they felt emotionally stirred, and they were told that if you just say a prayer, you'll be saved. It creates false converts, that's why it matters. And you have to ask yourself, what will you do when persecution comes? If your full allegiance isn't to Jesus as king, if it's just a mental thing, look, if it's just a mental belief, you can get talked out of your mental belief. This is is especially pertinent for, for youth going into college because it happens all the time that kids go off to college for a couple years, they're indoctrinated there, and because their belief was only mental, because they only had some, some facts that they memorized, they hear facts that contradicts the facts that they were given, and all of a sudden they're in this crisis like, well, nothing must be true then. If I can't explain the reasons why Jesus rose from the dead, then maybe he never rose from the dead, and then they come back and they're, they're just deconstructing. They, they don't know what's happening. And that's not persecution, but what happens to people who said they believe, and then this real persecution comes, and it may just start coming here. There's already hints of it. Christians are now being arrested for praying silently outside of abortion clinics. Saw this report, man was just praying silently. Wasn't saying anything, just had his head bowed. But that had been declared, sorry, a safe space. And his act of prayer was violence towards women going to be violent against their fetuses. And he got arrested for it. So that's not happening everywhere, but there's just hints of it coming. There's just little breadcrumbs that, hey, as as a church, as people who believe in Jesus, we're going to have to face this at some point. And have you put your faith and trust, not just your mental belief, have you made that public pledge, will you recount it, recant it when standing in front of people who want to persecute you? What will happen when persecution comes? Well, it's a public confession. And lastly, too many Christians do not engage with Jesus or the world in embodied action as an act of obedience to Jesus the King. And this has just neutered the church. Because we're told, just believe the right things, just say a prayer, and then you don't really have to do anything. Just come to church every now and then, show up to a Bible study, come to an event, volunteer at this event that we have, and you're doing good. But man, John Wimber famously said that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. It's spelled risk. You have to step out. You have to, you have to show the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that's in you even when it's going to make you look like a fool. And I have one of my favorite fools in here this morning. Adam, come on up. <laughs> Adam's in my home group, and he told us a story about some embodied action that he took, some faithfulness to God. And he's like, Charles, I don't want to do this. And I'm like, you're coming up, Adam. He's like, all right, I'll do it, whatever you need. Is this ready to go? And so I'm just going to ask him questions about something. And you can just look at me. You don't have to look at them, right? I, I know what they look like. You don't have to look at them, okay? <laughs> just look at me. Okay. So you're on your way to work one morning, 
and you have to use the restroom. Correct. Where do you find yourself? Hold it up a little bit. Um, so I was heading down to Mooresville and usually have to make a, a stop or two before I get to the job site because we got some you drank business some coffee. to take care yeah. of. Yeah, you drank some I coffee. I had to pick something up at Lowe's. Um, so I went into Lowe's and in Mooresville and uh, headed back to the restroom. Um, come to find out that it was getting cleaned. You know, and I'm in a bit of a rush. So the <laughs> lady in there is kind enough to direct me to another one that was just down the hall. So I head that way. So you're going there, and you're not alone in that restroom. Nope. Okay. There was a couple stalls I, I went in and was sitting there. Um, and you start a, to feel something. Bit of a backstory, like, you know, with home group and um, that time period, I had been... I think I'd been praying a lot for God to speak to me or to use me. Um, and I was trying to uh, concentrate more on, on uh, listening to him speak. So I uh, just went in and got this uh, kind of overwhelming sense of uh, suicide. I, you, you were not suicidal, but you no, started to I, feel I, I, I thought, suicide in the room. Correct. So, um, and just I, say, there's somebody in the stall next to you, yep, right? The guy in the stall next to me was kind of whimpering a little bit and wasn't normal bathroom sound. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe that could happen, but. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and the, the feeling kind of came over me before I heard these noises. Uh, so I was kind of caught in a little bit of a battle there in my heart and I was, I was like man do I want to try to talk to this guy or do I just finish what I'm doing and leave and um, I, I sat and thought about it for a minute and, and I started to speak through the stall divider and I called out to him a few times and he didn't reply. Hold on a second just imagine <laughs> you're that other guy you're sitting there and the guy next to you in the stall is like hey yeah. that's what you're doing. So two or three calls and he didn't respond so I, I whacked the divider there I'm like hey man I'm talking to you the one next to me and I said are you okay and he said uh, yeah and I said alright so I, I let it be for a minute and got up and washed my hands and, and I waited out in the, the hallway there for him to come out and he was a good bit because I was genuinely at this point concerned for him because I don't really ever think about that thing um so he came out, and, and I was kind of embarrassed. I didn't really know what to say. I was trying to find the right words. I just, I just told him, I said, hey, man, you know, I was uh, spending some time with God this morning, and um, I feel like he wanted me to just check on you and, and make sure that you were, you were all right today. And uh, I said, it might sound crazy. I was just trying to be obedient and, and do what he was wanting me to do because... Uh, Weeks before, I had missed some opportunities, and and that was weighing on me, and I, I just didn't want to let that pass me by anymore. So awesome! Thank you, Adam. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. I've never been in a situation in a restroom where I felt the need to pound on the side of the stall, but he felt God speaking to him in that moment felt it. And he said, he said, I missed some opportunities before. We all miss opportunities. 
We all have those times where we know I'm supposed to say something there. And he said, I'm not letting this one slip by, even if I look like a fool. And then he gets to have this conversation with this guy. Look, there's no proof of this, but I think Adam might have saved a life that day. We have to engage in obedience to Jesus because the world needs us. Like the world needs you to tell them and show them that Jesus is king. And that the only hope they have is to put their faith, their allegiance, their loyalty, their trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And yes, let's look foolish. Because what happens, what happens, what happens if each one, each person in here, anybody listening online, each person in here has one of experience this week where they get to live it out for Jesus somewhere for someone. It's a vacation week. We're a little low this week, but 80 of us. That's 80 people who get to hear about the power of Jesus. You've been in church for a long time. You probably have the right beliefs. You've probably made some public declaration. People know you're a Christian. You've probably been baptized. But are you going to walk it out now? Are you going to say, Jesus is my king and I will do whatever the king tells me to do because that's what servants of a king do. Where the king says jump, they jump. And then they say, was that high enough? Right, the saying is, you say, jump, how high? No, that you jump when he tells you to jump and you come down and you say, was that high enough? And he'll say, and I, I truly believe this. I believe it's like, yes, it is. And you're gonna jump higher next time. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Are we willing to risk it? Are we willing to engage in living it out. Man. All I know is that next time I'm in a stall in some public place, I'm going to be listening and God saying, you just lack one thing. Pound on the wall next to you. And I hope I don't walk away saying, and he walked away disheartened because he was going to be too embarrassed because he didn't want to look foolish. I hope I'm just like, hey, I'm talking to you. Jesus told me. Jesus said. I didn't have a reflection because I was running behind this morning. But this is our reflection. Stand up. Are you willing to risk it? That's the only reflection. As we sing a song, as we leave from here, you, have, you might have the belief. You might have had the public act. Are you willing to risk it in an embodied action?
Because that shows your faith. Shows our obedience to Jesus Christ as king. Look, because if Jesus is king, reigning now, then everything he says is the most important thing in the world to us. And look, he might not tell you to bang on a bathroom stall. That might have been just for Adam that morning for the benefit of this stranger. But he might say, I want you to do this one thing. What's that one thing that he's going to want you to do? Some of you might already know it. Like there's, uh, I actually believe this. I actually believe that God might be saying that there are so many people in here that already know the one thing that he's calling them to do. And now he's saying just step out in faith like the people in Hebrews 11 because you know Jesus, because you know God, you know his faithfulness. You do not step blindly but you step with him. And he's waiting for people who will say, I'll step, I'll walk, I'll go. If you want to deal with that with him this morning, you can come up to the altar and pray. If you want prayer for that this morning, love to pray for you. But you might just be sitting, standing in there in your seats and saying, what, what is it, God? What's the one thing? And that's the type of prayer that I think that when we pray, God answers, faithfully answers. God, you are good. Jesus, you are king. And let everything in my life flow from that belief. Jesus, you are king. Amen. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, he rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the So take me as you find me. So take me as you find me. All my fears and failures. Fill my life again. I give my life to follow everything I believe in. Now I
faith, that mustard seed, that we can say that the mountains be moved and it will be cast into the sea. God, you are good. Lord, for those who received it this morning, heard you speak, give us the courage to risk, the courage to step out. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. If you have kids, I'm asking that you go down, get your kids before you sit around and talk. Go get your kids, come up and talk, let them run around here, let them go outside if you feel comfortable with that. Uh, if you didn't sign up for the kids, Faith Kids Pool Party and you'd like to go, just let Abby know that you want to come. And she hasn't, uh, uh, She will have enough food. Just talk to her and we'll get that settled. God bless. Go out. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K.